This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today we're going to be talking about the question of mathematical reasoning, and if you learn mathematics, does that make you better at reasoning in general? Uh, this is something that I know for myself, I like to think about mathematics as helping people become better with logic, better with rationales, better with uh, critiquing reasoning. But the answer is not especially clear. Uh, mathematicians, philosophers, policymakers have all kind of sided with myself and said, yeah, studying mathematics is great for helping people in their reasoning. But psychology has decades worth of research where they aren't so sure. They're thinking that maybe this uh, mathematical thinking and mathematical reasoning does not necessarily transfer out into your everyday life. So we're going to take up this question um, with Matthew Ingalls, who has written a book putting together several studies where he really tried to tackle and answer this question. And the book is entitled, Does Mathematical Study Develop Logical Thinking? Testing the Theory of Formal Discipline. And I'm happy to say, having read the book, that he does offer a clear answer to the question. And he ends the book by saying, I have answered this question, which is good to know. Because sometimes when there's a question in the title, you read the work and it never really gets answered. But I have Matthew Ingalls with me here. So Matthew, thanks so much for sitting down and talking with us about your study. No, thanks for the invite. Much appreciated. Matthew is a reader in the Mathematics Education Center at Loughborough University in the United Kingdom, and this book was written with Nina Attridge. Um, but before we get to that book, Matthew, um, speaking to somebody from the UK, I want to actually hear a little bit about your educational background. So where did you do your graduate studies, and with whom did you work when you were getting your PhD? Um, well, I did my, my PhD at uh, the University of Warwick, which at the time was a big, big centre in mathematics education. Um, so David Tall, Eddie Gray and, and colleagues were there. Um, but I mostly worked with Adrian Simpson. He was my, my PhD supervisor, we say here, advisor, I think you would, you would say. But I ended up uh, also working with um, a guy called Derek Watson from the psychology department, who was um, a visual attention researcher. Because we ended up wanting to do some, some work on tracking the eye movements of mathematicians as they tackled reasoning tasks. So I ended up doing quite a lot of work with, with Derek, and that sort of got me more interested in the psychological side of, of things than I was previously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, when did you become intrigued about this contradiction surrounding the theory of formal discipline? And first of all, maybe in your own words, you can tell us what the theory of formal discipline is. I alluded to it in the intro. Yeah. But when did, when did you really get drawn into this intellectual question of the contradictory stances that yeah. people had on it? Well, I think you put it very well. So the theory of formal discipline is really just the idea that you and everyone should study mathematics. Well, the first thing to say is mathematics has a very privileged place on the school curriculum in almost all countries. Mm -hmm. So normally you've got to study it longer than most other subjects in terms of age and maybe more hours per week and and so on. Mm -hmm. So really, why is this? Well, there's several answers to that question, of course. But but one of the main ones has been, well, learning mathematics somehow improves your thinking in some underspecified general sense. Mm -hmm. And I don't... Uh, know if, if this is true elsewhere but certainly in England we all say this to prospective students who come to our department so for example on Friday uh, this week I'm doing an open day talking to some 17 year olds trying to persuade them to come and study mathematics at university and the, the text I've been given 
it's, you know, it says, you know, if you come and study mathematics, you will get better at thinking. <laughs> and this, as you said, is also endorsed by a lot of extremely important philosophers. So it dates from, from Plato. He was one of the first people to, to say this and various other people, John Locke and so on. And also policymakers, so, mm-hmm. um, which is why mathematics has this privileged place on the school curriculum. So what's kind of strange is that this is a really accepted claim amongst mathematicians and policymakers and, and so on. And yet, when you go and talk to some psychologists... And as I, as I said earlier, I, I ended up doing this a lot during my PhD because um, I ended up working with, with some colleagues in the psychology department. They just look at you, well, this is not true. You know, they just say, well, no, this is nonsense. We've known this for 100 years, that um, far transfer is very difficult. Mm. Edward Thorndike worked and did a, a whole series of really impressive studies in the early 1900s. The conclusion of those studies is, no, the theory of formal discipline is, is not the case. And what's really interesting is both both sides of this debate. Uh, well, it's not it's not a debate. That's the problem. Both sides of this of this divide don't seem to know the other side exists. They both just feel like they have the answer, but they didn't realize somebody else has a different answer. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of strange because, this, as I say, this has serious policy implications. For example, in the UK a few years ago, there was a, a report written by a very famous mathematician who said, "Look, you know, maths is important because of this theory of formal discipline." Not the words he used, but. But that's essentially what he was saying. And therefore, we should charge lower student fees to people who, who study mathematics. And all these kind of things pay mathematics teachers more than other, other subjects. Hmm. So there's important policy implications. And yet, it seemed to me there was this really peculiar situation that there was a, a debate that wasn't happening, which should have been happening. So that's, yeah, I suppose that's where I first got kind of fascinated in, in the question, really. Yeah, and being involved with psychological colleagues was probably a big part of that because you actually rea- you realized the contradiction that other people were just sort of closed off to. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. So that's definitely the big question that the book takes on. Um, and I should say this book is published by World Scientific. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to it. But what are some of the more specific questions that you kind of were able to articulate as empirical questions that you could then answer with some data and some uh, empirical evidence gathering? So the first thing that, that happened, so I was very fortunate to get a, a, a Royal Society grant to look into this, which was a, a very long, so it was a five-year project, which is kind of unusual. So I had a, a, a nice period of time where I could sort of systematically go, go through this, which is, is rare. I mean, most grants, at least in, in here, are only two or three years long which would have been difficult. So I sort of tried to be really systematic about how to how to go through this. So the first thing, I'm saying I, but this was all work, I should say, done with Nina. The first thing we did was trying to get people who endorse this theory to be a bit more specific about what they mean. Mm-hmm. So one of the frustrating things is if you observe people who say this, theory of formal discipline in, in some kind of um, public setting or you know, talking to prospective students or, or what have you, you know, if you sort of analyse what they say, it doesn't. It's very hard to know what it means. So, saying you know, studying mathematics improves thinking. Well, okay, what what is what is thinking? So, the the first step we did was this interview study with various. Um, in the book, we call them stakeholders. So, sort of people who were advocating for mathematics as a discipline. So, some government ministers who who were arguing that mathematics should have a bigger place on the curriculum, some sort of people who are involved in learned societies, but those kind of people who, who you know, thoroughly endorsed this view. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get them to try and make some specific predictions about what exactly they meant. So the, what we did is I got a large number of tasks from the Psychology of Reasoning literature, which were all sort of designed to tap different types of thinking 
behaviour and different kind of skills. And I just sort of gave them to the, these people. And I said, look, you know, here's a task. Do you think that studying advanced mathematics, which in the UK context means the post-compulsory uh, course that people uh, take from age 16 to 18, do you think that studying that course would make you better at tackling a task, this, this specific task? Mm-hmm. And it transpires when you do that, people are very nervous. Because mm-hmm. they know that this could be tested. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So people got a lot more you know, nuanced in their responses, actually. And, you know, said, well, you know, I think that's true, but maybe something, you know, and they came up with all these alternative hypotheses that might be going on as well. So that, that served two purposes, that study, really. One was to get people to try and describe in some more detail what kind of thinking these theory of formal discipline proponents were, were thinking of. Mm-hmm. But the other thing was to choose a small number of psychology of reasoning tasks that we could then go on and use in a, in a subsequent study in the, in the manner you suggest. Um, so yeah, so that was the first stage. Um, and we ended up with some, some tasks that essentially everybody in that sample felt that studying mathematics would develop, mostly to do with uh, conditional reasoning and, and syllogistic reasoning. And then the next step was simply to go and find some people who have studied mathematics and some people who have not, um, and then see if they perform differently on those tasks, having controlled for various sensible things that, that might be confounds. Because, of course, if, if they don't, if those two groups of people just perform exactly the same, then, then the theory is wrong. So that was the first test. Yeah, and that's the cross-sectional one is basically... You know, you could be done a couple years early if you yeah. <laughs> if you found no differences in the cross-sectional analysis because that's kind of like a necessary piece of evidence would be that there is a difference between these groups of people when you look at them cross-sectionally. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, let's let's start there. Just um, you know, again, a lot more details in the book, but just when you did that first comparison of just cross-sectional analysis of two different groups, what did you find in that case? Yeah, so we found quite substantial differences, actually, and we, we tried to control for possible differences in, in uh, general intelligence, for example, to see if there was, you know... So we, we did all the sort of standard controls that you, that you would hope were there in such an experiment. Mm-hmm. And so we found, firstly, that there was a difference between mm-hmm. people who had studied advanced mathematics and people who had not. Um, so we were talking about, um, to be a bit more precise, we did various studies. But one, for example, was with... Um, undergraduates who had come to study mathematics at university on day one and uh, students who had come to study in arts-based subjects on day one mm-hmm. and then com- comparing their performance on these reasoning tasks. And yeah, so we found there were differences and those differences were largest on tasks that involved uh, decontextualised reasoning. So mm-hmm. less uh, thematic real-world content and more abstract content. Mm-hmm. So as you say, that's actually very weak evidence for the theory of formal discipline, but it does... It does get round if the answer to that had been no, there's no difference at all. Yeah, so basically the theory of formal disciplines survived that first cross-sectional look, but there's also this filtering hypothesis that is very possible as well. Do you want to say a little bit about that, how that could also explain the cross-sectional findings? Yeah, so we have this result that people who have studied advanced mathematics reason differently in some, some sense to people who have not, so why might that be? Well, the theory of formal discipline says it's because of a developmental effect and that their education caused that difference but the big alternative hypothesis is as you say is what we call the filtering hypothesis which is just there is natural variation in how people reason um, on tasks of this nature and people who reason in a particular way are disproportionately likely to choose to study mathematics so one of the irritating things about this whole question is that you can't really do a proper study 
you know, in an ideal world, you would randomly allocate people <laughs> to, to study mathematics or not. And then two years later, you'd come and do, you know, you'd test them. But sadly, the ethics committees don't, <laughs> don't let us do that. So you have, you have limited options for how to deal with those two hypotheses. So the only real way of doing it is to do some kind of longitudinal study where you, you track people through and, and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which you did in a couple different ways uh, next. And so this, yeah. again, is kind of your systematic work over several years. But now you went into a longitudinal investigation to try to see if you could gather more evidence to help you parse whether this is the theory of formal discipline or whether it's the filtering hypothesis and try to really separate those out longitudinally. Yeah. So then what, what insights do you feel like you gained when you did start to look longitudinally and you followed some people as they studied mathematics? Mm. Yeah, I mean, so that the results there were really quite easy to interpret, actually. So the big worry when you do a study of that sort is that at time one, you might have a pre-existing group difference. Mm-hmm which would be very very hard to interpret any results because you might have, um, there's various different ways you could account for such a thing, but you might just have pre-existing differences that um, people on different trajectories and you, you, there's no developmental effect, yeah. so you can't really conclude much. But in fact, we, we didn't have that. So what we did is we, the first longitudinal study we, we did was in, in England. Um, and as I say, England is a slightly unusual country in that students can stop studying mathematics at age 16 if they want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a big political debate here about whether that's a good idea or not. But it, it's very handy for for study for a study of this sort. <laughs> um, so we we took a load of uh, of students uh, just starting their sixteen to eighteen studies, and we we had two groups: one group that had opted to study mathematics, and one group that had opted to study English literature and not mathematics. So we got rid of anyone who was doing both, mm-hmm. and we just simply tested them at, very, at, at the beginning and end of their first year of studies. And at the first year of studies, there was no difference at all, which mm-hmm. um, was a nice, a nice finding because it makes, it makes the interpretation of anything that appears at the end of year one much easier. And by the end of year one, they had diverged in their reasoning behaviour. Mm-hmm. So the mathematics students had changed, but they'd changed in a kind of interesting way. So they hadn't, um, well, they, they had become more... Uh, logical in some normative sense but really the changes had only come on the invalid conditional inferences so we, we were concentrating in this study on on conditional reasoning so reasoning of the form you know if p then q and what what you can deduce and so on there's a long long history of psychological research on such tasks mm-hmm. and we found that the mathematicians made basically they didn't change at all over the course of their first year of mathematics advanced studies on valid inferences mm-hmm. you, you give them a valid inference and you say is this correct or not and then you give them an invalid inference and you say is this correct or not and the, mm-hmm. the, the mathematics students got a lot better at rejecting invalid inferences but well, mm-hmm. a lot i shouldn't say a lot better they got significantly better yeah. at uh, rejecting invalid inferences and no changes at all and in, there was a, even a slight change uh, in the reverse direction on one of the invalid inferences which was kind of interesting because it suggested that one of the things maybe that was going on was that mathematicians were just somehow becoming more skeptical of logical deductions in general uh, and, right. and that that kind of helped them in a for the invalid inferences but in some sense it overgeneralized to some of the valid ones as well so so this was slightly surprising because of course the theory of formal discipline would predict you would just become more logical in some general sense mm-hmm. and that absolutely was not what we found um, but contrary to the filtering hypothesis we did find changes that occurred in the mathematics group, but not the the, the English group. Mm-hmm. 
everybody was pretty good with the uh, modus ponens, like the just the typical if P then Q, you have P, therefore Q. Yeah, uh, every, everybody's pretty happy with that one, right? Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, it was really these invalid ones that the students who had studied mathematics, they became much more critical of those and say, like, no, I'm going to reject that yeah. at higher rates. So that was the difference. But they also, I might be confusing a couple different of your longitudinal studies, but yeah. I know a general kind of finding that you had was that the math students would also tend to reject modus tollens. Like they would exactly. they would have, you know, if P then Q, you've got not Q, therefore not P, which logically we would say that is fine. Mm. That's a valid inference to make. But the math students would actually start to reject that more as they studied yeah. mathematics, right? So this is kind of what you're saying, where they may, might have kind of just been getting more critical overall yeah, and just been, right. been happier to reject <laughs> inferences. Yeah. Yeah, which actually is not not an you know it's one of the things that we would like to claim. Well, more criticality at least would be one of the things mm -hmm. that we'd like to claim mathematical study develops. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, obviously they would hope that it wouldn't wouldn't overgeneralize too much to to situations where it's wrong to be critical. But yeah, and I I might have been touching a little bit into the longitudinal study with the college students. So I wondered mm -hmm. if you just wanted to say a little bit about what what insights you gained from looking at the college students over time. The undergraduate students, you mean? Yeah, undergraduates. Yeah, yeah so we also um, did a similar study to the, to the sixth form students, which is the 16 to 18-year-olds, at university level. With This time uh, we, we did it with mathematics students and psychology students. And we found a basically similar-ish pattern with the mathematics students. But also the psychology students tended to get a bit better as well. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the development we found, you couldn't, you couldn't isolate to to just one group rather than the other. And mm -hmm. in, a, in a sense, that was a poor choice of a comparison group for us. We wanted to do it with English literature students, but for various tedious practical reasons, that turned out not to be possible. So the, the, I guess the message there is, well, the development we observed in the 16 to 18-year-old students carried on through these undergraduate years, but we wouldn't want to, we couldn't claim that mathematics disproportionately led to that compared to, to studying a subject like psychology mm -hmm. which of course has quite a lot of quite a large mathematical probably statistical component at least so mm -hmm. so yeah I mean the, the mathematics specific nature of, of the development we, we wouldn't want to make strong claims about it. right yeah and I feel like that's a little bit too ambitious to say that like mathematics is the only discipline that will help yeah. you become better at reasoning and logic. Like I'm I'm happy if mathematics helps people get better at reasoning and logic and if studying other things also helps them get better at reasoning that's fine with me too. We can spread spread yeah. it around. But but that said, I mean I mean you know obviously you're right but in some sense that's that that isn't right because then the, the claim that mathematics should have this privileged place on the school mm -hmm. curriculum sort of falls away. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you're conceding a bit. To <laughs> right. If I was just a pure math advocate and I wanted it to be, you know, exceptional above every other subject, mm. no. then I shouldn't have said on record <laughs> what I just said. But to me, just speaking honestly, it's like, I don't think math has yeah. to be the only way that you can get better at this, but... I feel like it's one way. I mean, I think philosophers would say studying philosophy is also another way to get better at reasoning and that kind of stuff. Absolutely, yeah. I'm speaking with Matthew Ingalls from Loughborough University about his book, Does Mathematical Study Develop Logical Thinking? So we've tiptoed into a little bit of the answer. You give more details in the book. But I just want to check back in with you personally. Do you feel like you have an answer, a resolution to this uh, contradiction that started you out on this study? Um... Well, in some sense, yes, um, because I mean it's one of these these unsurprising 
findings that once you have this sort of underspecified broad question, the answer is, well, on the one hand, yes, on the other other hand, no. So, Mm -hmm. yes, I mean, I would say the theory of formal discipline is is in some sense true. You know, there is some truth to it. Mm -hmm. And I should caveat again that because you can't do a genuinely randomised study, Mm -hmm. all of this evidence is inherently not that persuasive. You know, I think it's the best you're likely to get Mm-hmm. given realistic constraints but it's not that strong evidence so we need to be a bit careful with making strong claims but my personal view is that yeah this this series of studies has convinced me that the theory of formal discipline is true to some extent to the extent at least that studying advanced mathematics does does develop abstract conditional reasoning to some degree but it does it in a kind of interesting way um, not a purely normative way so the question then becomes well is that a resolution to the the overall theory and I guess the answer would be, well, no, not really, because, you know, the theory would say, no, that people you know, studying mathematics makes you actually more logical, not not just develops it in some way. Mm-hmm. And we didn't find it makes you more logical in some global sense. Um, the next question is, well, the reasoning tasks we chose were in some sense as favourable to the theory as possible, mm-hmm. um, because, as I say, we, we chose the ones that our stakeholders felt were most likely to. So there's p- plenty of other areas, and in fact I've done some subsequent research on some of them, so uh, Sarah Humphreys, one of my PhD students, did a nice thesis on spatial reasoning and whether mathematics, mathematical study develops spatial reasoning. And, and there we found uh, very, very strong evidence for the filtering hypothesis that there was absolutely no developmental effects mm-hmm. that we could we could trace. Mm. You know, I, I would say the theory of formal discipline is not as wrong as <laughs> educational psychologists think, but it's not as right as mathematicians and, and policymakers think either. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that a lot of the policymakers and even the philosophers, um, but especially the policymakers, I think, probably hoped that the improvements in reasoning would have been more um, expansive to contextual situations and even into situations where it's like, hey, here's a kind of rich argument with multiple steps and it involves a real context and you're having to reason about that. And I think the policy makers would hope that math actually helps you in those, mm. whereas the the place where you found the most evidence was more on the abstract side. Like, if we kind of strip it down to these, like, logical inferences based mm. on rules of logic kind of thing, yeah. that's where you found the most evidence. But that is probably a little bit disappointing to policymakers because they would probably just want math mm-hmm. to help you in life, meaning, like, real yeah. situations with complexities or maybe more complex arguments, yeah. um, more complex kinds of reasoning than just valid inferences invalid inferences like for one one thing that yeah. comes to my mind is i would hope that students that learn mathematical reasoning would also be able to uncover latent assumptions that people are making in life like yeah you know you're making this argument in life but i can tell that you're actually using a few implicit assumptions mm-hmm. and i'm going to expose those to you yeah. and that might help us actually clarify our thinking yeah i mean so this is a, a big debate in the psychology of reasoning field that you know to what extent do these kind of uh, lab-based tasks tell us anything and there's an enormous literature on this um, and I, my view is that the evidence is now actually quite strong that they do they are measuring something that correlates with real life behaviour mm-hmm. this, this is not now I'm not talking about my research I'm talking about the, the general literature yeah. um, so for example there was a very nice study done by someone from Leeds who looked at this this thing called the decision outcomes inventory, which is this sort of fun sort of psychological scale where you basically tells you how rubbish you are at life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how, how often do you buy, buy plane tickets and then not catch the plane? Or how often do you fail to pay your rent? Or, how you know, all, all these kind of 
bad decisions. Yeah, you mentioned one like uh, you buy food at the grocery store and then it goes bad before you eat it. So that was Precisely, probably yeah. not you weren't optimal in your grocery store habits. Absolutely, yeah. So, so things like that, and it turns out there are systematic individual differences at how how bad people are at life <laughs> in in that in that very specific sense. Your score on that decision outcomes inventory is actually uh, predicted by your performance on these kind of reasoning tasks. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's there's some evidence that, re- in particular, decontextualized reasoning, I think, is a really important life skill. Actually, so I, funny enough, I've just bought a new car, and I was trying to decipher the the, the manual this morning about how to to set the automatic tire pressure gauge. Mm-hmm. And it's just this horrible series of sort of, if this light comes on, do this. And then, you know, you have to follow this, this logical deduction of, of instructions. And, I, I, you know, I found it quite, quite difficult. And I was thinking to myself, you know, this is actually a really nice example of, of where someone who can't sort of abstract away from, you know, what they're feeling and just look at the, the precise abstract series of instructions is actually going to really struggle. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, there's this nice quote I have in the book about... Um, how you know the complaint that life is not like abstract reasoning tasks is becoming less and less true, and in fact, um, you know, life is becoming more like abstract reasoning tasks. The more mm-hmm. post-industrial uh, society becomes. Yeah, the more we rely on computer technology, I mean, which is kind of built on a lo- logical structure, but beneath it, and we have to interact with those and kind of realize, like, oh, mm. it's following these kind of rules of inference. And yeah. if I do this, then this is going to happen. If I do that, it's going to go into these different cases. And yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, I did have another question about uh, the kind of mathematics instruction that the students were having. So there were the mm. 16 to 18 year olds, and then there were some undergraduate students. Yeah. Because I've been studying the reasoning opportunities that students have in math classes, yeah. and I, I see a wide variety of like some math classes where it's hard to find any any what I would call like rich reasoning opportunities. Yeah. But then other math classes where it's like, wow, they are doing good reasoning all the time, justifying, yeah. critiquing, clarifying their arguments. Yeah. So I wondered if you if you think, uh, like, were you kind of just studying generic math instruction and then does it show up uh, in these, you know, reasoning yeah. logic tasks? Or do you think that there might be different findings if you went to math classrooms that really emphasize justification and critiquing and clarifying arguments? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, so it's a very hard question to answer at scale. So the one, I mean, there's a couple of things I can say about that. So in in the book, we also did a longitudinal study, which was designed to be directly analogous to the the UK study, but in Cyprus. So the reason we chose Cyprus is for for sort of fairly obvious um, cultural reasons that they have a lot of deductive Euclidean geometry. Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought, well, this is a very, whereas in England, that's actually quite rare. There's a little bit, but not, not much. And I thought, okay, maybe they'll we'll see different differences here. And actually, it was really very consistent with the the English results. So there was mm-hmm. not not much. In fact, the, the bigger the bigger predictor probably was just the simple amount of hours per week. So there was a very sort of linear relationship, it seemed to me, between the amount of study a, a student did. Um, I mean, a small number of data points, which is four syllabuses, but um, but nevertheless, there seemed to be. There wasn't the big differences that there could have been if, if, if the curriculum was, was really important. Now, that doesn't address your question, of course, because your question is about teaching styles or these teaching approaches, not simple curriculum. Mm-hmm. So the other, thing, the other thing I could say about that, so in the later study that Sarah, my student Sarah Humphreys did, she did a really very large scale study about spatial, the development of spatial reasoning. And 
one thing we did there is we had such a large sample we could re- reasonably do well-powered statistical comparisons between different classrooms, mm-hmm. and there we found no difference at all. So mm-hmm. it didn't. But again, because we weren't observing what was going on in those classrooms, you know, that doesn't. I, I can't tell you that the answer to your question is no. It makes no difference. It may, maybe there was not much variation in teaching strategies or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think your question is a really, really important one, but I. I can't give you a great answer right are there other questions that are still kind of on your mind that you feel like the research community could answer in the future yeah i mean there's lots i mean i think that's that's a really big one actually like how how does as you exactly as you say you know one of the major claims for for very changing teaching approaches it provides more opportunities for extended reasoning and so on what's the consequences of that in some broader transfer sense (laughs) that i think that would be a very important question to answer because it really I mean, if the answer is no it makes no difference whatsoever I think that mm-hmm. does under undercut yeah. quite considerably the, the rationale for, for making these changes so it would be nice to have some evidence of that that, that plausible hypothesis was in fact correct mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Matthew Ingalls and I want to ask you a fun question to end the interview I ask all my guests this uh, if you are not in educational research and doing what you're doing as a career could you imagine something else as an alternative career well, this is a very good, very good question. Um, well, I guess it depends on how realistic you want me to be. I mean, I would love to be a, a professional snooker player or something. I think that would be fantastic. <laughs> but um, no, I take one, one, one thing. I just so a, a couple of years ago, I was interviewed by a BBC radio journalist um, for a, a documentary he was making about. Um, well, actually, it was about mathematical aesthetics. It was about some some other work I'd done, and I had a long chat with this guy afterwards. And he 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 basically explained to me that his job was finding out interesting things that just interested him and then going away and making radio documentaries about them. And I thought, hmm. that, is the, that is a fantastic job. Yeah. You know, so he was telling me, I sort of asked him, you know, what, what are the things you've, you've made documentaries about recently? And he was saying, you know, oh, I was following people who every morning go and swim in an ice, icy lake, you know, <laughs> just trying to understand why they do this. I thought, oh, that's a, you know, and then other things about, oh, some, some strange thing about the Cold War spying. And, you know, all, all this just mm-hmm. completely random and mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, that would be a really good job. Just just go finding out things you're interested in, and then making a documentary about it. I'd like to do that. Yeah, and you're you're developing skills of your craft, but it's, the job is kind of new each time because you have a Absolutely. new to- new topic, yeah. and yeah. you're learning a lot. You're probably meeting interesting people. Yeah, and, yeah. And the nice thing was because it was on a radio, because it was a it was a radio thing. It was just him and his microphone. He didn't have to faff around with a whole camera crew or anything. He could just you know drive around looking for. <laughs> Ah, that's great. Well, Matthew, thanks so much for putting the book together and laying out your ideas. Um, it was really enjoyable to read and to pass on my uh, thanks to Nina as well. Great work, and thanks for speaking about it with us. Oh, thanks very much for the invite. I appreciate it.
Thank you for listening to the Math Ed Podcast. And next month, we are going to be celebrating the 100th episode of the podcast. So to mark that occasion, I want to have a special episode, and I'm asking for your help. What I'd like you to do is think about an article or a book of math education scholarship that has been especially meaningful to you. Maybe it inspired your teaching practice, maybe it inspired you to become a researcher, or maybe you emulated the methodological approach in the article. Maybe it completely changed the way that you see math education or that you see the world. If you have a special article or book like that, and it can be recent or it can be an ancient classic or anywhere in between, I'd love for you to be part of the 100th episode. What I want to do is collect and share a lot of people's favorite, most meaningful articles and books from math education. So if you want to be involved, all you have to do is two simple things. Make a one to four minute recording, introducing yourself, and then explaining why that resource is so meaningful to you. Then send that audio file in any format and the citation information for your article or book to me at ottensa at missouri.edu. That's ottensa at missouri.edu. I'm asking for these by October 10th so that I can compile it and release the 100th episode in October. So that's by 1010, a little bit after PMENA. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you. That's one to four minutes sent to ottensa at missouri.edu by October 10th.